0: Herman Melville's famous novel, Moby Dick, is the story of Captain Ahab's self-destructive obsession to hunt down the white sperm whale that bit off his leg. Well, Captain Ahab's lust for vengeance is countered by his first mate's desire to return safely to his family. The first mate's name is Starbuck, the coffee company's namesake, by the way. But there's a line in the story that applies to our text. Starbuck is speaking to the ship's crew when he says, I will have no man in my boat who is not afraid of a whale. Well, you see, according to Starbuck, some fear can be healthy. I've never met one, but I've been told that giant sperm whales are pretty dangerous. And a proper fear is important for a sailor to possess. He needs to be as sensitive as possible to the risks involved in harpooning a killer whale. A proper fear can be healthy. Well, after today, I hope we all take heed to the words of Starbuck. For if Moby Dick was the king of the seas, then the lion of the tribe of Judah is the king of the jungle. And by the time we're done, I hope everyone, under the sound of my voice, has a healthy fear of that lion. We start today not with lions or with whales, but with horses. The Bible mentions horses and horsemen over 300 times, but the four most famous are here in Revelation chapter 6. Here are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're going to read about them in a moment. You know, today whenever we picture a horse, we think of either a racing thoroughbred or Maybe a Shetland pony at the petting zoo or maybe a recreational horse or, or even a parade or circus performer. But historically, horses specialized in warfare. You see, the horse was the tank of the ancient world. Cavalry, cavalry always had a leg up on infantry. Actually, it had two legs up on infantry. Thus, four horses in heaven charging the planet was an ominous sight for John to see. It set off alarms in his head. It struck fear in his heart. He knew that this would not bode well for planet Earth. Imagine a four-horse starting gate. A thoroughbred racehorse crouches behind that gate, ready to bolt. Now these are huge, powerful animals. Each one is six feet tall, over a thousand pounds. They can run 35, 40 miles per hour. These four beasts are in the gate, stomping their hooves, snorting hot breath. They're waiting on the gun to sound. But these four horses aren't released all at once. Four guns are going to sound in this chapter, or four seals are going to be broken. After each snap, another horse is going to gallop toward the earth. And guess who's in the back of the stall, slapping each judgment horse on the flank? Sending it on its rampage of destruction. Well, it's none other than the roaring lamb. It's Jesus, the king of the jungle. You know, this past week marked a milestone for our church. And I hope you'll be as excited about this as I was. This past Monday, I walked into Brand Bank and I handed them the final check on our mortgage. We paid off our church mortgage. What a blessing. The building we meet in is now all ours. All of our plumbing problems are all ours. The bank no longer has a say. It's solely under our management. What an accomplishment for our church. We praise the Lord for His faithfulness. But this is similar to what happens here in Revelation chapters 5 and 6. You remember chapter 5? I mean, if you were here last week, who can forget it? There's this scroll in heaven. It's bound with seven wax seals. This is a real estate document. This is the title deed to the whole universe. A strong angel asked John, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? At first, John looks around and he sees no one. And he realizes what this means. This leaves the world in dire straits. When mankind fumbled, when he sinned, when he dropped the ball, When Satan recovered our fumble, Satan usurped authority. He started throwing his weight around. The devil today is getting his way. Three times in John's Gospel, Jesus calls him ruler of this world. Satan is now the neighborhood bully. And John knows that if someone isn't worthy to redeem, or to take back this universe from Satan, it will fall forever into his diabolical clutches. The thought of this is too much for John to consider. He's overwhelmed. In chapter 5, he begins to sob. But that's when one of the 24 elders speaks to John. And you should always listen to your elders. He tells John, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. There is one worthy. And then John turns Take a look at this lion. And we're told there in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus is that regal lion, the king of the beasts. He roars and the earth melts. But the lion looked like a sacrificed lamb. It still bore the marks of crucifixion, the scars. Jesus is the king of the jungle, but he earned his authority on the cross Shouldering our sin, paying our debt, absolving our guilt and shame. Jesus the Lamb paid the buyback price. Now here in chapter 6, He's going to take back the universe from its usurper. John observes in chapter 5, Then the Lamb came and took the scroll out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. Jesus now has the paperwork. He owns the universe, lock, stock, and barrel. It's repo time. Have you seen that show on True TV? Operation Repo. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands because you probably don't want your neighbor to know you've watched the show. This is a crazy show. I mean, folks walk outside and they see somebody toying away their jag. Nobody likes that. They get mad. They get angry. They go crazy. They start picking a fight or waving a gun and the repo team has to get rough. They'll use force, if needed, to take possession. And this is what happens in Revelation chapter 6. The lamb paid the price. He takes the scroll. But Satan is like the deadbeat who goes nutso when the rightful owner tries to take his property. And Satan tries to stop the repossession. This is when the lamb gets rough. You know, ancient title deeds, they were closed with multiple seals. Each seal marked a next step in an eviction process every time another seal was popped the owner was one step closer to possessing what belonged to him and the squatter was near to being out on his ear now here's where we are in the history of the universe Jesus has the scroll and Satan is the troll he is he's the troll the devil lives under the bridge that Jesus owns And He makes life hard on the passers-by. Satan frightens and hassles them. But soon, Jesus is going to take back what belongs to Him. He's going to start popping these seals. And He's going to open the scroll. And it's going to drive out the troll along with all of those people who've been enchanted by His evil. This is what happens in Revelation chapter 6. Jesus opens the seven seals and horrible judgments are unleashed on a planet that has resisted His rule and His ownership. He's going to punish the people who prefer to live under Satan's sway. You see, we don't understand, we don't realize the aberration that we live in. Today is the day of salvation. We live in the age of grace You see, normally, God's modus operandi is to put down revolts as quickly as they rise. When Satan launched his angelic coup d'etat, judgment was swift. It was immediate. God didn't wait around. Jesus recalled, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. God dealt with it quickly. He didn't beat around the bush. He judged quickly and decisively. We don't realize that human history is an anomaly. It's a deviation in the story of God. God has been amazingly tolerant with mankind. I mean, rather than bring down the hammer, which is His nature to do, God has given sinners opportunity to repent. He's waited patiently for thousands of years. But as God explained to Noah, there are limits to His patience. He said, "...My spirit shall not strive with man forever." In Exodus chapter 34, God identifies Himself to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. He's the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That sounds so good, doesn't it? God is benevolent and He's kind, but His patience is not infinite. He finishes that thought by saying, and by no means Clearing the guilty. God won't put up with perverted ways forever. Holding the guilty accountable is as big a part of God's nature as it is showing a repentant sinner mercy. Currently, we live in a day when mankind is having his way, getting his say. I call it the day of man. Mankind rules the roost on planet earth. We think we're in charge Yet the Bible teaches that the sun will set on the day of man and a new day will dawn on planet earth. God will have His say. God will insist on His way. God is going to judge the evil in this world and He's going to silence human opinions. Paul refers to this period, the period that's coming as the day of the Lord. Imagine renting your house to folks who ignore the lease, they refuse to pay the rent, and then they trash the premises. Can you imagine? You might put up with these deadbeats for a few months. You might try to work with them a little bit. But eventually, you're going to foreclose. And you're going to start the eviction process. And this is what Jesus does in Revelation chapter 6. Actually, you really got to tip your hat to God's patience. Believe you me, His long-suffering has been remarkable. Just be thankful I'm not God, okay? Be thankful I'm not the Almighty. The first time the Jews yelled, crucify him, or the moment that soldier's hammer hit the spike into my son's wrist, or today when a Muslim jihadist slits a Christian's throat with his saber. Hey, if I'm God, I'm going to bow up. Their heads are going to roll. I'll take max vengeance. Man, the first time I saw a child abused, or a woman raped, or a wife beaten and battered, or a senseless murder, or a person killed by a drunk driver, or a baby aborted, or a corrupt politician stealing taxes, or a college professor undermining a teenager's faith, or a Hollywood producer blaspheming the name of Jesus, I'd just clean house. I'd throw so many burning comets at this fallen planet, I'd need Tommy John surgery afterwards. I have a short fuse. But not God. Not God. Jesus is waiting. Can I underscore that? He's waiting to pop the seals and to right the wrongs and to punish the evil and to take back possession. He'll do it, but He's waiting. A trillion times a day, he overlooks the sin that he sees. Though it breaks his heart, he's willing to endure. Apparently, to God, the weight is worth one more sinner who'll repent. You see, the Bible is clear God loves us, He's given us opportunity, but He won't wait forever. It's been said the love of God is eternal, His patience is not. The day will come when God will lure the boom. And this is what chapter 6 predicts. The world's rightful owner opens the deed and evicts the sorry tenants. Verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. Now pretend you're at a heavyweight boxing bout the champ climbs into the ring and the arena announcer shouts to the crowd, let's get ready to rumble. But you look and God's champ is a little lamb. We'll soon discover that this little lamb, he packs a really big wallop. And I looked and behold a white horse. Now it's Jesus in charge of the stall. He's the one that will unleash each of these four horses, the white horse, then the red horse, then the black horse, then the pale horse. Jesus is about to prove He's not horsing around. Even today, these horses are in the gate in heaven. I mean, they're snorting, they're neighing, they're kicking at the dirt. Trust me, they're ready to bolt right now. He's going to send the white horse first. And of this white horse, Jesus or John writes, He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, it's a common mistake to assume that this first rider is the Lord Jesus. We've probably been confused and conditioned by the movies. You know, in all the old westerns, when the hero comes riding up, what's he wearing? He's wearing a white hat. He's riding a white horse. But that's not the case with this first seal. Jesus is in heaven breaking seals and sending horses. He's not the one riding them. A Russian artist named Viktor Vasnetsov is famous for his 1887 painting of the Four Horsemen" in chapter six, and he gets the most important detail right. That's why I wanted to show you the, the portrait. Notice at the very top of Victor's painting, the lamb has the open scroll before the throne of God in heaven, before the rainbow. Now to be totally accurate, the lamb should be bigger and should dominate the scene. This is all about Jesus sending judgment. But Victor realized that the lamb is not the rider. He got it right. The rider on the white horse is an imposter. You see, if you want to fake a $100 bill, you don't put Obama on the front. Try to spin an Obama buck and it won't fool anybody. I mean, you want your C-note, you want the C-note to portray Ben Franklin. You want it to look as close to authentic as possible. And this is the devil's strategy. He He puts the false Christ on the white horse to try to make him look like the true Christ. And yet the features ascribed to him give him away. It is true that in Revelation chapter 19, we'll see Jesus returning to the earth on the back of a white war horse. But that's where the similarities here end. Jesus returns at the end of this period of judgment. After the seventh seal, this guy rides in at its outset in the first seal. Recall from chapter 1, Jesus always has a sharp sword. Here, this false Christ carries a bow. In Genesis chapter 11, Nimrod, the hunter, was the first to rebel and orchestrate a revolt against God. And you remember what we learn about Nimrod? He was an expert in archery. He was an expert with the bow. After the flood, God hung up his bow. He hung a bow in the clouds. He said he would never again judge the world with water. And he put the rainbow in the clouds as his signal promise. But Nimrod, he hated God. And he tried to draw men to himself. His bow was a symbol of his conquest over the hearts of men. Likewise, this is the goal of the rider on the white horse. Notice he has a bow but no arrows. Apparently this rider, he conquers the nations without firing a shot. This is a leader. He's hailed as a man of peace. He's an expert in diplomacy. He designs a sinister shalom. There's also a difference in the crown that he wears. Here the word crown denotes the laurel wreath or the competitor's prize. In Revelation 19, Jesus wears the diadem or the kingly crown. Jesus has the right to rule. The rider on the white horse has stolen his authority. And it will only last for a short time until Jesus returns. I read of an Israeli tour guide who confessed to his group, I am so desperate, I'd sign a deal with the devil if it would mean peace. And sadly, that is exactly what the Israelis will one day do. The final seven years of history called the Great Tribulation begins when Israel signs a treaty with this rider on the white horse, a.k.a. the Antichrist. Verse 3. Now when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another And there was given to him a great sword. You see, it doesn't take long for the false peace brought in by the white horse to crumble. Paul predicts this in 1 Thessalonians 5. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. You know, today the world chants, give peace a chance. That's what everybody wants. But the world's peace will be short-lived. The second horse speaks of war and bloodshed. It foreshadows all of the skirmishes that will lead up to the final battle of Armageddon. Notice its color is appropriate. It's blood red. The death toll will be astronomical. Millions upon millions will die violently. But as the world suffers under the throes of war, Jesus opens the gate to a third horse. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. In John's day, scales were a symbol of commerce. All the buying and selling done in the ancient world was done with the use of scales and balances. He says, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. In the Roman world, a denarius was a typical day's wage. Thus, here basic food staples are costing huge sums of money, Inflation has skyrocketed. Global famine will drive up the price of food. You know, living in America today, we're sheltered from the conditions in which most people on this planet live. It's frequently stated, one-third of the world's population has plenty to eat. By the way, that's us. That's us here in America. One-third are undernourished and one-third are on the verge of starvation. We've just watched a superstorm unhinge life in the northeastern United States. What if a superstorm or a global drought wiped out a single growing season? A severe famine is not that hard to envision. I mean, your wife and kids would join the African children you see on TV with their sunken eyes and their exposed ribs. Notice, too, the irony here in verse 6. Basic foods will be depleted, but there's still an abundance of luxury items like oil and wine. I think it's God's sarcasm on man's priorities. He'll have booze to drink, but no bread to eat. It's even more profound if the oil in verse 6 can refer to petroleum, not just olive oil. We'll have gasoline to fill up our cars and drive our fancy vehicles, but no food in our belly. You see, there's a time coming when Jesus is going to rock this planet. False peace is going to be followed by war. And war will be followed by famine, and famine will be followed by death. Verse 7, For when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. This Greek word translated pale is chloros, from which we get our words chlorine or chlorophyll. It denotes a greenish-yellow color. It's the flesh tones of a person who's seasick. Heard somebody say, well, he turned green. It's actually the color of a corpse without the makeup. It's the color of death. And the name of him who sat on it, this fourth horse, was death. And Hades followed with him. Death has an entourage. Hades fills up on the heels of death. This pale rider is thinning out a wicked population. You know, this summer we read stories of folks having their limbs amputated, even dying due to mysterious flesh-eating bacteria. That's scary. We heard now about a meningitis outbreak. I mean, you think, what's next? The World Health Organizations are well aware that some new antibiotic-resistant super plague could easily kill millions of the human family. One day it's going to happen. Add together the cumulative effect of all four horses, and the impact is staggering. John writes, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. A quarter of the world's population will die. You know, last year the global population topped 7 billion people. A quarter of that would be a death toll. Of 1.75 billion. That's amazing. I mean, it's hard to imagine 1.75 billion of anything, let alone a, over a billion dead bodies. I mean, you don't understand how big a number that is. Did you know that if you counted one number per second, you know how long it'd take you to get to a million? 11 days. Go home this afternoon and try it. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. That seems like a long time. But did you know it would take you, to count to 1.75 billion, it would take you 56 years, counting one number a second. Now imagine nearly 2 billion dead bodies littering this planet. Last week's hurricane toll hit 98 people. That seemed like a lot. The four horsemen of the apocalypse will kill one out of every four human beings. And all the while this carnage is going on on earth, remember what John saw happening in heaven. Believers from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people, believers redeemed by the blood of Jesus, are standing before the throne of God singing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. You know who that is? That's the church. That's you and me. We're the only ones... That can say out of every tribe and every nation, Worthy is the Lamb. We're the only ones that can sing that song. That's the church. That's you and me. Before this judgment comes down, the church will go up. We're going to get raptured. We're going to get snatched away. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, God did not appoint us to wrath. But we have some friends who won't. There are seven seals, not four. In verse 9, Jesus breaks another. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. As Jesus pops the seals and judges the earth, guess where the rebels take out their frustrations? I mean, rather than take responsibility for the consequences of their own sin, they try to shift the blame to the believers. These followers of Jesus, they become the brunt of their anger. During the Great Tribulation, some people will recognize God's judgment and they'll turn to Jesus. They'll be saved, but not so safe. For the rider on the white horse will make it a crime to be a Christian. He'll insist that we all just coexist. Anybody who takes Jesus as Lord will be silenced. This final seven years, we'll see a multitude of martyrs. And we see these martyrs here in verse 9. Their souls, not their bodies, but their souls are crying out under the altar in heaven. This means that they've missed the rapture. We know that when Jesus comes back for the church, when He retrieves the church, He'll be a body snatcher. He raptures not only your soul, but He resurrects your body. As Paul said, this corruptible must put on incorruption. These tribulation believers, they're camped out under the altar. Their souls are there. They've been brutalized. They've been victims of injustice. And they let us know it in verse 10. They cry with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You probably recognize the song they sing. You probably recognize their cry. It's a familiar refrain. Isn't this a lot like the prayers that you and I have prayed? I mean, when I see a criminal walk out of a courtroom with a slap on the wrist or he gets released on a technicality or when I watch a judge uphold rules that sanction the murder of unborn babies or when we realize that evil men are enslaving young girls in a sex trade or when we hear of deviants who make millions off child porn. I mean, don't you get angry about that? Don't you cry out for vengeance? I do. Isn't there a righteous recoil in your heart whenever you see evil prosper and good despised? This shouldn't be. In Psalm 58, David saw evil men going unpunished. You know what he prayed? He said, break their teeth in their mouth, oh God. I love that prayer. I've prayed that prayer a time or two. I've prayed for a few broken teeth in, in somebody else's mouth. You probably have too. Today, the world glorifies tolerance for all religions except Christianity. Faith in Christ is the sticking point. And you see, it's a small leap from bigotry to brutality. That's why the false Christ on the white horse will hand down a death penalty to anyone who worships the true Christ. He says, Then I saw a white robe It was given to each of them, these souls under the altar, And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. In Revelation 19, Jesus does return. And when He does, the martyr's blood will get avenged. Their pain will be eased. But for a time, they'll have to wait. And this word wait, this is the challenge for your faith and for my faith today. Jesus will right all wrongs. Jesus will avenge us, but not in our timetable. Verse 11, rest a little while longer is as relevant to us today as it will be for these future saints. In verse 12, Jesus breaks the scariest seal yet. I looked when He opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake... And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. I mean, this earthquake is the big one, baby. I mean, this is the one that blows up the Richter scale. The earth convulses, and smoke turns the sky black and the moon red. We're told, in the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. The Greek word translated stars is esteris. It applies not only to stars, but to asteroids or meteorites. Any cosmic projectile streaking through outer space. Oh boy, this week, past week, my yard was deluged with leaves. The milder outer winds of the hurricane stripped my trees. Just dumped leaves all over my yard. And one day, just like it, Jesus is going to shake the sky above us and celestial bodies are going to pelt and pummel this earth. And as a result, then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This upheaval is almost beyond description. Obviously, when He cracks open the sixth seal, Jesus is taking the gloves off here, man. This is raw, rough, bare-knuckles judgment. Jesus is going to unleash massive, cataclysmic punishment upon this rebel planet. Hey, we won't be. Understand, we won't be here. But if we were on the earth at this time experiencing these judgments, it would make us want to take back all of those cries for vengeance. We, We would feel so sorry for the people around us. All I can say is sympathies to you if you missed the rapture. And you're here when this sixth seal breaks. Take all of the meteorite movies over the recent years. You know, do you understand this has become a a film genre? Go in and Google meteorite movies. You get a big list. Armageddon, Deep Impact, Night of the Comet, Doomsday Rock, Asteroid, etc., etc., Yet all the Hollywood special effects combined are too tame to illustrate the damage such an event would do. I've got a movie. It's not a Hollywood flick. It's a National Geographic special. It's titled Asteroids, Deadly Impact. It's a documentary. on not just the possibility of a major meteorite strike in the future, but it's inevitability. They say it's not when, or it's not if, but it's when. This is going to happen. Do you realize that every day the earth gets bombarded with 20 tons of cosmic rock? Now most of it is space dust, but larger strikes occur. Geologists can take you around the globe to over 140 craters all around the world that are the result of incoming asteroids and comets and meteorites. And according to verse 13, it's going to happen again in a big way. Recently, CBS News ran a special report. It quoted astronomers who estimate that there are over 400,000 NEOs, or near-Earth objects, up to 1,000 meters wide, that could strike planet Earth with little or no warning. Here it happens, and it's going to happen in our future. It's going to happen when Jesus breaks the sixth seal. The stars fall. Then this super quake creates massive fissures in the earth's crust and continents shift and islands vanish. And as the ground shakes under their feet, the inhabitants of the earth, they look up and they see the sky receding or rolling up like one of those paper party horns after a big blast. In that movie, Deep Impact, the United States sets up a survival village in the caves of Missouri called the Ark after the disaster. And I wonder if the script's writers read verse 15, because it sounds very similar. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? What a phrase. The wrath of the Lamb. What a phrase. Now stay with me. I'm at the end of my text, but not at the end of my thoughts. Remember, this book isn't the revelation of future plagues. That's not what it's called. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here's the question that we should be asking ourselves this morning. What does all of this teach us about Jesus today? And this is a phrase we should chew on. The wrath of the lamb. That's a provocative phrase. I mean, no other animal is as docile and gentle as a lamb. The phrase, wrath of a lamb, that's a prime oxymoron. And likewise, no other person is more gentle and more tender with a trusting heart than our Lord Jesus. But the day is going to come when he'll be gentle no longer. The rejecting heart will taste his wrath. The lamb will roar. And this is a side of Jesus that you need to see. You shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be naive. This is a side of Jesus that we all need to see. Hebrews 13 verse 8 tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Understand, our Lord never changes. When we get to Revelation, Jesus doesn't suddenly grow fangs. This is the same Jesus who welcomed little children and showed compassion on the lepers and reattached the ear that Peter chopped off of his own arresting officer. I mean, Jesus is full of mercy and full of grace. Perhaps Jesus' marvelous mercy is what's overshadowed those times where He got angry. But there were times when Jesus got really angry. In Mark chapter 3, before Jesus healed the man's withered hand, He saw those Pharisees who were more concerned with their petty rituals and laws than they were with this man's suffering. Mark tells us that Jesus, He looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their heart. Jesus got angry. Twice, Jesus went ballistic and drove the crooked priest from the temple. Once with a whip. The other time, he used his bare knuckles. He got furious, man. Jesus got ticked off. I'll never forget the Sunday I said that in a sermon. I said, Jesus got ticked off. And this guy comes up to me afterwards. He oh, says, Pastor Sandy, you got a little carried away this morning. I think that's disrespectful. You should never say Jesus got ticked off. I didn't apologize. Matter of fact, I thought my language could have been a lot stronger. I'm glad he didn't know what I thought I was going to say. I mean, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was the person who went on a temple tirade I mean, he called the religious elite of his day, he called them hypocrites, blind gods, you fools and blind, you whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, you lawless, you sons of murderers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. I'm sorry, you don't call somebody a snake if you're not a little ticked off. Jesus got really angry at times. And I'll tell you why Jesus was so prone to anger. It was because he was so intent to love. That's the reason. You see, the reason your kids make you so angry, and they do, don't they? They can make you very angry. But the reason your kids make you so angry is because you love them so much. Love gets angry. If you love someone and you see them headed toward danger, you don't remain callous and indifferent. If you're passionate toward them, you'll get angry if they refuse to heed your warnings. You see, I'm afraid we've watered down love. Kids today conclude that if their parents don't cater to their every whim, it means mom and dad doesn't love them. The opposite is true. A parent who loves his kid will discipline them. Years ago, there was an arsonist in Washington State that set several damaging fires. A man heard the news And as the evidence began to unravel, he suspected his son. Eventually, the dead contacted police and turned in his own boy. I saw the interview they did with this boy afterwards. And I'm going to tell you, your heart went out to this anguished, heartbroken dead. He was a Christian. He made that clear. And he loved his son deeply. But he believed that justice had to be served. And it was his love... It was his love for his son that made him stop his boy before he set more fires. You see, real love is tough love. Real love is not afraid to draw a line in the sand. It says this far and no further. 1 Corinthians 13 is true. Love is patient, love is kind. But there comes a point when love has to hold the person it loves accountable. Every time Jesus breaks one of these seals, you know it breaks His heart. But love will not stand by forever and watch the human race annihilate itself. Love will intervene. For 2,000 years now, Jesus has sought to interrupt and intervene in our madness with His mercy. Finally, He'll do it forcibly. I'll tell you what we've got here. Remember in the Old Testament... Blasphemy against God was a capital crime against the nation. I mean, it sowed seeds of rebellion among God's people. Thus, it deserved a penalty of death by stoning. Ironically, this is what's occurring in this sixth seal. When the seal breaks, the Lamb in heaven is acting like a lion. He is pelting this planet with meteorites. He is administering a stoning on the blasphemous planet. All the while, the earth's brazen rebels are pleading for an avalanche to put them out of their misery. They're not even repenting. They're they're not even calling out for mercy. You see, at His first coming, Jesus sought to interrupt man's rebellion with mercy. Ask that adulterous woman in the temple. He stopped her stoning. But in the future, when Jesus pops the seals, He will interrupt man's mutiny by participation in a stoning. He will pour out His wrath. Remember the point of Revelation. John was writing to first century believers who knew Jesus while He was on earth. But now He's exalted, glorified, even amplified. He hasn't changed natures. But while on earth, He wrapped Himself in lowliness. He made Himself of no reputation. He became a servant to save you and me. But today and forevermore, Jesus is unveiled. All that He has been is unwrapped now. His glory is on display. Our faith needs to grasp this truth. Our faith needs to grow up. I like what Dorothy Sayers wrote about Jesus' first coming. She said, The people who hung Christ never accused Him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought Him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with the atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale churchgoers and pious old ladies. Boy. You know, I suggest that the angry lamb of Revelation chapter 6 is much closer to what Jesus was really like than the concepts a lot of people have of Him today. Sayers continues, she says, To those who knew Jesus, however, He in no way suggested a milk and water person. They objected to Him as a dangerous firebrand. He had a daily beauty in His life that made us ugly. And officialdom felt that the established order of things would be much more secure without Him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quiet. And I'm just saying this morning that Revelation 6 lets us know that they didn't do away with Him forever because He's coming back and He's coming back with judgment. There's a lot we can learn from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, just because Jesus loves us doesn't mean He never gets angry with us. He does. Realize, everybody in hell is still loved by Jesus. His wrath wrath never nullifies His love. But there is stuff that love can't tolerate. Love won't sit by forever and watch the person it loves self-destruct. There comes a time in this life and in the universe... When Jesus has the courage to intervene, He will stop us in our tracks and He'll turn us over to our own choices. Jesus extends mercy today, but He breaks seals tomorrow. Which brings us back to the words of Starbuck. I will have no man in my boat who's not afraid of a whale. Or you could put it this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The revelation of Jesus inspires love for the Lamb, fear of the Lion, and above all, worship for the Lord.